Pray together. Our God, we thank you now that you have called us to hear your word and consider it. We pray now that you would help us to see things we otherwise wouldn't see, to hear things we otherwise wouldn't hear, to understand things we otherwise wouldn't understand, to believe things we would otherwise not believe. We pray that you would open our hearts to your word and open us to your word. We pray that you would open the word to us and through it all we might see Jesus Christ and be drawn to him in repentance and faith. We pray that for us and for the good of our lives and our family and the world you've called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever seen the movie A Beautiful Mind, it's the story of this brilliant Nobel Prize winning mathematician. I mean, just a mind that is incredible, and it's a mathematician who goes on in 94 to win the Nobel Prize, except the sort of incredible part of the story is that he suffers from schizophrenia. And so if you know the story, he, he has to figure out how to live his life while dealing with this disease. And John Nash is the name of this incredible man, and he has to live with the fact that he's got this mind that is brilliant, but at the same time is broken. And so there's these characters that are just sort of figments of his imagination. He's got a, a niece, just cute as a button, little girl. And he's got a best friend who's his roommate in college that he can talk to at any time. He's got a CIA director who's calling him to these sort of high secret, top secret classified missions with Russia. And all of that is fake. All of it's just imaginary. All of it are just delusions, imaginations of his mind. And so the whole story is him trying to learn how to deal with this reality. And, and what's incredible about the story is that John Nash eventually, without medication, learns to live with schizophrenia. And he does it by ignoring these voices. They appear to him, real life, flesh and blood, as if he could see them in the room, and he learns to walk past them. He learns to ignore them. He learns to defy them. He learns to resist them. They still call out to him, call for his attention, call for his allegiance, call for his obedience. They still try to control his life and direct his actions. But all the while, throughout the movie, he begins to learn to walk past them, to ignore them. He essentially changes his mind about them as he learns to resist them. One author has said that that is a good picture of what repentance looks like. That when Christians talk about repentance, what they're essentially saying is, you come to contact with the true God. And your reality collides with the reality of the living God. And now you begin to change your mind. And what you do is you walk past the old voices and the old lies and the old realities that used to dominate your life. And now you embrace a new reality. About everything in your life, things begin to change as you constantly walk past old voices and old lies that used to dominate your life. You learn to defy them. You learn to walk past them. You learn to ignore them as you embrace the truth of who God is. That's essentially what I think needs to happen today as we talk about Sabbath and rest. And I say that because I don't think there's anything that I could tell you about our need for rest that would be new to you. I don't think I'd have to tell you that we are a culture and probably even a congregation that can tend towards overwork. I don't know that I'd have to tell you that we need to rest and have times where we pause and slow down. I don't know that it'd be new to you if I told you, you know, when they get to the deathbed and people talk, nobody on their deathbed goes, I wish I worked more. 
You know that the common refrain in those final hours is always, I wish I spent more time with my family or with my friends. No one has regret about working too little. And so you know all of that. And so in order for us to walk out of here and not just hear the same thing, but actually change, it will take us walking past old lies. It will take us changing our mind about how we've thought about this before. It'll take us embracing a new reality that we're going to have to defy the rules that sort of occupied how we lived before and walk and live a new way. That's my prayer for us today, that you'd have a change of mind that would cause a change of life. Two weeks ago, we began sort of a short series looking through the rhythms of work and rest. And so for the last two weeks, we wanted to think about what the Bible had to say about your job, about the design of your work in creation, and the difficulty of your work because of the fall and because of sin. And we looked at why your job matters to Jesus. Today we want to go to the other side of the seesaw. And we want to consider the other part of our rhythm. And we want to consider Sabbath. That word that just means rest. We want to consider what it looks like for us to rest. There's two passages that talk about the Sabbath that I want us to consider today. And at first glance, I want you to hear, they look almost exactly the same. One is in Exodus and one is in Deuteronomy. And when you read these two passages, almost it appears to be identical. It's sort of like those kids' activities of spot the difference, where you've got these two pictures that look exactly the same, except this one has a freckle and that one doesn't. I mean, it's so similar that you've got to pay attention to see if you can spot the difference. So let me read you these two and see if you can spot the difference. They're both in the list of the Ten Commandments. They're both the Fourth Commandment. But there's a difference there that matters. So let me read you the first one. Exodus chapter 20, this is verses 8 through 11. So if you've got a Bible, it's the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Here's what it says. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's Exodus. Now let me read you Deuteronomy. And again, it's the same section. It's, it's the Ten Commandments. It's going to be, again, the Fourth Commandment out of that list of ten. But here's what it says in Deuteronomy 5. This is verses 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, I trust you've spotted the difference, right? Both are in the list of the Ten Commandments. Both are the fourth command in that list. Both say, on six days you shall labor and work. On the seventh day you shall rest. Both say, you shall rest, your son shall rest, your daughter shall rest. Both say, your servants should rest, male servants and female. Both say, your livestock should rest. And both say, the sojourner at your gate shall rest. 
But the two passages ground why you should rest on two different reasons. If you caught it, one points you back to creation. And one points you back to redemption. One says, when you rest on the Sabbath day, you should remember back to how God made you. Deuteronomy says, when you Sabbath, you should remember back to how God saved you. One is recalling what God did in Eden, and one is recalling what God did in Egypt. And these two sort of foundations for the Sabbath give you an insight to what God is getting at when he tells you to rest. So let's look at these two. Let me look at Exodus first. Exodus tells us, here's the command. Six days you shall work, and that's good because your work matters. It's good. God created your job as a good thing. So six days you shall work, but on the seventh day, it's going to be different. You're going to treat that day different. You're going to receive that day different. You're going to spend your time on that day different. It's going to be distinct from the rest of the week. And so the command to Israel was, listen, if every day looks the same for you, something's wrong with your rhythm. If every day looks exactly the same, then something's off because there should be this day that's set apart, that's different, that's distinct. That's what the word holy means. This day is holy unto the Lord. It's different than the others. You receive it differently. You treat it differently. You spend it differently because it's distinct. It's holy unto the Lord. And then he says, and here's why in Exodus 20, verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here's what he's saying. We rest, and we could talk through as Christians the particulars of that. Christians have talked long about whether that's Saturday, whether that's 24 hours on Sunday, whether that's an afternoon, whether that's been fulfilled in Jesus. We can talk through all the particulars. But there ought to be in your life some rhythm of regular rest. So whether you're talking about an afternoon, whether you're talking about a day, and we can talk with me through all the particulars of that, here's this regular rhythm of rest you've built into your life. And the reason you have that, Exodus will say, is first because God rested. Right? It's calling you back to Eden. You shall do the Sabbath because on the seventh day the Lord rested. We are called here to imitate God. That we're to rest because God rested. One author said, it's sort of like this, it's not that God was tired, but it's almost like a parent with a young toddler. And it's almost like you got to get into bed in order to sort of coax your child to get into bed. It's not that I need to sleep, but I need to lie down in order to somehow convince this little child to sleep. So that I can say, it's not that I'm tired right now, but son or daughter, you need rest. And so almost in that kind of way, God sets this example, knowing our need for rest, so that we imitate God. We're to rest because we mimic God, and yet here's the irony that's built into the Sabbath. We imitate God in order to remind ourselves that we're not God. You see, when God rested, let's just be clear about this, God didn't rest because he was tired. He didn't rest because he was worn out. He didn't rest because he had had a long, hard week and he was waiting for the weekend to get a break. God didn't rest for those reasons. The scriptures tell us that our God neither slumbers nor sleeps, that our God doesn't grow weary. 
The scriptures tell us we will run and grow faint and grow weary, but our God doesn't grow weary. The keeper of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He doesn't need a nap. He doesn't need to store up his energy so he can get back at it. Our God has no problem with that. So then, you consider that when we mimic God in rest, we do so to remind ourselves that we're not God. The irony of the Sabbath command is imitating God so that we can stop finally trying to be God. Would you hear that? We rest, and when we do, it's a loud declaration, I can't keep going. You can, which is why I stop. It's this humbling thing. What the Sabbath does is it humbles us to recognize you're not God. We, in a sense, say, look, I'm taking a nap because you're the keeper of Israel who doesn't slumber nor sleep. And in fact, it's because you're still awake that I can go to bed. It's because even when I lie down and sleep, and I'm essentially dead to the world, that you'll sustain everything, keep everything going. It's my trust in that that lets me take a nap, lets me pause, lets me rest. This one writer named Mark Buchanan, who wrote this book called The Rest of God, which I would highly commend to you, I read it over the summer while I was in India for a few weeks taking rest. And it was a wonderful book that I would commend to you, The Rest of God by Mark Buchanan. He writes this, he says this, For us, rest is indispensable. We try to outwit and outrun our limits. We think we're the exception, the one for whom busyness will translate into fruitfulness. We think because we've figured ways to build impossibly tall, lithe buildings and dig immensely deep, broad holes to spy on babies in the womb, to tease out strands of DNA, to send whole computer files from New York to Nairobi in a split second. We think because of our industry and ingenuity seem boundless. We think we can also figure a way around our God-imposed need for stillness. We can't. This need is not conjured away by medication, technology, discipline, cleverness, sheer willfulness. It always comes back to take its due. Right? You, you hear what he's saying? He's saying, look, with all the things we've accomplished, we think that we can somehow beat the reality that we're not God. And if we just push harder and push longer and push faster, we can keep going. And yet always comes this pattern that we need to stop. We need to rest because we're not God. Here's what that means. You taking a nap today can be just as worshipful as anything we will do in this next hour here at church. Because by it, you will declare in that moment, you are strong and I am weak. And you neither slumber nor sleep, so I can. Because you hold all things, I can let things go. I can pause because you never pause. I can stop because you never stop. Because you need no rest, I can rest. You see, in our beautiful but broken minds, there's this old lie, there's this figure that stands there, this illusion. And what it speaks to us is, listen, you're different. Everyone else needs a break, but you, you're the exception. You can push through, so drink another Red Bull and keep going. And Sabbath is us walking past that lie. Us defying that voice and saying, no, I'm going to embrace the reality that I am not God. I'm going to rest. I'm going to take a walk. I'm going to listen to music. I'm going to do this thing that brings life to me. And I'm going to do it as a loud declaration 
that I am not God. But would you notice also when God rests? In Exodus 20, it says, rest imitating God. But would you notice when does he rest? It's the passage that Kurt read for us. In Genesis 2, it tells us when God rested. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. All right, you you can keep reading verse 3. But here's what it's saying. When does God rest? He rests on the seventh day when he finished. We just said God didn't rest because he was tired. Then why did God rest? God rested because he was done. He didn't have anything left to do. His work was complete. He rested because he had gotten to the end of his work. He had finished what he had set out to do. He was done with it. And so on the seventh day, he rests. So what that means then is that when God invites us to rest, It's grace. It's getting something you haven't earned yet. It's getting something you haven't deserved. It's getting something you haven't worked for or accomplished. You see, he rested because he had a right to rest. He earned his rest. He finished his work. So my question for you would be, have you finished everything you need to do? No, if you were here last week, we said work is relentless. It's never done. And so what that means then is when we rest, we don't rest because we've earned it. We don't rest because you've finished everything you need to do. Sabbath then is a gift. It's like everything else that comes from our God. It's undeserved. It humbles you because you realize, I didn't work for this, I didn't earn this, and yet I'm going to receive this as a gift. Would you hear that? Sabbath is not... Your rest is not your reward for finishing your work. It's not a bonus for a job well done. Instead, it's right smack in the middle of all the unfinished stuff. It's received right in the middle of projects that are left to do, and floors that are left to mop, and clothes that need to be put away, and deadlines that need to be met, and things that need to get done. And right there in the middle of that, we receive it without apology and without guilt, simply because God said we could. You see, Sabbath is us saying, I'm walking past the old voices. I'm walking past those illusions that dominated my reality. And I'm receiving from God this free gift. You see, you receive Sabbath the same way you receive Christianity. You receive it by saying, I haven't worked for this. I didn't earn this. I can't repay this. I'm not good enough to get this. I simply take it as a gift. God extends this gift and I humbly receive it. That's what Christianity is. That's what the Sabbath is. So listen, you taking a walk today, and not to shed weight. You can shed weight another day. You taking a walk just to take a walk could be as worshipful today as anything will do in the next hour here in church. Because by it, you will declare That in that beautiful, broken mind of yours, you're walking past all the lies and the illusions. And you're going to say, you haven't deserved a break. You haven't finished all there is left to do. And yet you're going to say, I can do this because God said so. And his voice is the voice I listen to now. He dictates how I spend my time. And he gives me permission to rest. Sabbath is this gift given to us that reminds us we're not God. But also, the invitation, the command to Sabbath, 
remember, is not only to look back to God's finished work in Eden, but it's also a call to remember God's finished work in Egypt. Remember, that's what Deuteronomy says. Same command, fourth command, you should rest, six days work, everybody rest, but why? Well, if you remember, in Deuteronomy, we get a different reason. This is Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Here, it's going to say, listen, you don't just remember God's work in Eden on the Sabbath, but rather you Sabbath because you remember also God's finished work in Egypt. You remember what God did in Egypt. Now, what is that? What was happening in Egypt? Sort of just as a quick background for you. If you know the story, the people of Israel, God's people, were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Generation after generation after generation, living under Egypt and its power and its rule. And they lived under the Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. Pharaoh was essentially the God of Egypt. And he was the God because he controlled your life. He determined whether you lived or whether you died. He determined whether you worked or whether you took a break. Everything about life was determined by Pharaoh. Now, what was life like under the God of Egypt? We could read through whole chunks, but let me read you just one section from Exodus 1 to give you a snapshot of life under Egypt. Here's what it says, Exodus 1, verses 8 and following. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread about. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now that's life under the God of Egypt. This is what work looks like. And if you were with us a few weeks ago, you can almost hear how far work has come from what it was designed to be in the garden. I mean, the echo of work in Eden is almost gone in Egypt. Because now work is completely different. Work here is now slavery. Right? Do you notice that? In verse 11, it's described as a heavy burden. In verse 13 and 14, it's ruthless. It's bitter. It's hard service. Work has now enslaved you. Now, in Egypt, work was also driven by fear. If you notice in verse 9 and 10... Egypt is scared to death, scared that Israel is going to be too many and too mighty, and so they constantly keep them work. And so what's driving their work is this underlying fear. You'll also notice that now the main goal of work is surplus. If you notice in verse 11, what Israel is occupied doing is building what? Store cities. Meaning now work is about getting as much as you can, working as much as you can, to get as much as you can, so that you can accumulate as much as you can, so much so that you've got to build store cities to surplus, to hold all that you've accumulated. It's this unending need to get more, so much so that we've got to build whole cities to keep all the stuff we've built up. Now, we are a long ways away from Egypt. And yet, 
You can almost hear echoes of some of that stuff in our work. That work tends to enslave. That underneath our overworking is often fear. I mean, you can hear it. I'm afraid that if I don't go in, I'm afraid that if I don't do that, the bo- you can just hear in that refrain, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. There's this fear that drives so much of our overwork. And then our work also is marked by this endless need to accumulate more, surplus, as much as we can, so much so that we've got to figure out where to store all the excess. I mean, this is what life under Pharaoh looks like. And in fact, there's one more scene I could show you. In chapter 5, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, The God of Israel says, Let my people go so that they could worship me. And, and I want you to hear, it's this long passage, but just a quick snippet of what Pharaoh says in response. This is Exodus 5. Here's what Pharaoh says. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw from themselves. But the number of bricks that they had made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Now there's a whole bunch of stuff we could notice, but would you pay attention to this? Pharaoh is appalled by the idea of rest. Pharaoh is disgusted, appalled by the thought that these folks would need to take a break. And what you'll notice is Pharaoh himself is restless. right? And and you begin to see what a contrast between the God of Egypt and the God of Israel. Pharaoh is driven by fear. He's sitting on the throne and yet he's paranoid and insecure. In fact, all that he commands is out of this fear that they are too many, so we've got to keep work going. And what a contrast with the God of Israel who rests. So Pharaoh can't rest. He's restlessly sitting on that throne and therefore can't imagine that his subjects would rest, that his servants would take a break. And so what does he do? He accuses the people of being idle, of being lazy. What Pharaoh cares more than anything about is productivity. It's meeting quotas. It's making sure the work schedule keeps on so that the number of bricks does not decrease by one. How you related to God in Egypt was by what you did, by what you accomplished, the work you got done. Not one brick less. In fact, you read down in chapter 5 by verse 18, the taskmasters are whipping the Israelites. And when they do, in verse 18, they say, Go now and do your work, and you shall deliver the same number of bricks, not one less. And that's a sort of summary of life under Pharaoh. It's get to work, and you better deliver. Get to work now, and you better deliver. Because what Pharaoh cares about, how you relate to Pharaoh, is how many bricks you make. Imagine then that now a new God comes. A new God comes into the lives of these people. And with a mighty outstretched hand of his, he rescues them. By the way, through no work of theirs, no helping out, no contribution, no pitching in of theirs, through his outstretched hand, he delivers them. And he says to them, you are no longer under Pharaoh. He doesn't call the shots anymore. He's not your God. 
He doesn't dictate your life. He doesn't determine whether you live or die. He does not determine your hours anymore. I am now your God. And he says, I am setting up a new society, a new world, and I'm going to give you my commands of what life under me will look like. And he says, here's my command. Every seventh day, you get the day off. In the world that I'm creating, in the society that I'm building, every seventh day, you get the day off. I mean, when we hear Sabbath and we think of it as somehow oppressive, a burden, a bunch of stuff we can't do, I mean, those first people would have heard and been astounded. I mean, you think of their, their whole lives, they had never taken a break, and now this God comes and says, here's the society I'm building. And you even think the kinds of commands he gives. Here's what life under me is going to look like. You shouldn't kill anyone. You shouldn't sleep with your neighbor's wife. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't steal. And in order for there to be a good society, you should also take a nap every seventh day. I mean, in light of all the epic things he's listing out, how does a nap fit in? And yet, that's what this God is saying. And he's saying, listen, you know why? Because you're not slaves anymore. Because you're not slaves anymore. Here's my commands. Remember them. Remember with my outstretched arm how I saved you. And because you're not slaves anymore, you can rest. See, essentially what's happening is Exodus says, receive the gift, the grace of Sabbath because you're not God. And Deuteronomy says, receive the grace, the gift of Sabbath because you're not slaves. Exodus says, remember, you're not God. And Deuteronomy says, remember, you're not slaves. You can rest because you're not God, and you can rest because you're not slaves. Would you hear me? Slaves don't rest. Slaves can't rest. Slaves, by definition, have no right to rest. Slaves have no freedom to rest. Rest, then, it turns out, is something that only free people can do. You see, you think that you live in a culture that demands overwork and you being available 24-7 is a highlight of how important you are. That's an old lie, an illusion you've got to learn to walk past because reality says slaves are the ones who never rest. Slaves are the ones who are required to be available 24-7. Slaves are the ones who never take a break. In order to rest, you must be free. And Sabbath is our loud, defying declaration. We're free. We don't belong to Pharaoh anymore. We don't get dominated by old voices, whether they be in our culture or in my mind or in my world. Those voices, I walk past them. I defy them. I ignore them. There is a new God that dominates my reality. And I receive his rest because he said so. Because I'm not a slave. You see, in your beautiful but broken mind, there will come back old voices, old taskmasters that are ready to whip you the second you want to take a break. In fact, let me read you one more quote from Mark Buchanan's book. I, I tried to think of a better way to say it myself, and I couldn't, so I'm just going to read you his quote. Listen as he sort of describes his sort of inner turmoil as he wants to take a break. He says this, When I try and step back from my day's work, the taskmasters in my head rise up, look at me menacingly, advance toward me. What do you think you're doing? Uh, just taking a few minutes to sit down. You're taking a few minutes to sit down. 
How quaint, how charming. You're taking a few minutes to sit down as though there's not a huge stinking pile of things you've left undone. You are so weak and pathetic. I'm warning you, there's a thousand things to do. There are a million things to worry about. Get off your lazy, sprawling backside and get busy. When are you going to clean your office? Have you phoned the mechanic yet to have that rattle in your truck motor looked at? Do you know how many emails you haven't responded to? Do you think you can just while away for an hour here on the couch when all this hangs over you? You are so smug, so rude, so slothful. What kind of time-frittering, excuse-mongering, sad sack of sluggard are you anyway, lolling about as if work is all done, you should be ashamed of yourself. Now, I read that because I couldn't have said it better. I had this, I've had the same conversations in my own brain, and you have too. The old taskmasters show up. And Mark Buchanan goes on to say, listen, you know, the, the odd thing is they can't hurt you because, like John Nash's mind, they're made up. They're imaginary. They don't exist. They're not real. And yet, the mental warfare, the psychological warfare they wage. And he goes on to say, you know what the worst part of these taskmasters is? They're masters of half-truth. Meaning there's a little truth to what they say. There is work to be done. There is a lot of stuff left unfinished. I do tend to be lazy. I can procrastinate. People will be disappointed with me. And yet, when I hear all of that and realize, look, the truth is, I don't have a right to rest. That's when the good news comes and says, thank God, God doesn't care about your right to rest. You see, I stopped living with what I had a right to a long time ago. I stopped operating out of what I've deserved a long time ago. The entire Christian faith is based on you receiving what you have no right to. What you getting what you don't deserve. You enjoying what you've never earned. That's what the entire Christian faith is. The entire Christian faith is you weren't good enough to get to God. So God came down to get to you. And he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross for your sins so that without you working to pay back God, God paid everything for you. And the only way you become a Christian is not by your work, but by receiving Jesus' work. That's how it works. That's how you become a Christian. It's you receiving something you didn't deserve. So when I rest, I'm receiving something I didn't deserve. I'm receiving something I haven't earned. I'm doing it simply because there's a new voice that I listen to. You see, Sabbath is defiance. Sabbath is us saying, God calls the shots on my life now. God dictates my work and my rest. God dictates my schedule and my hours. God dictates how I receive time and how I spend time. Sabbath is the declaration that Yahweh is now my God and that the way that I relate to God now is not by how many bricks I make. I'm done with Egypt. I don't relate with God anymore by what work I do for him. That was Egypt. I relate to God now by what work he has done for me. Would you hear that? In Egypt, you related to the God by how many bricks you made. But Israel's different. Because before he even gives the commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. As in, without you doing anything, I did the work to save you. I rescued you. So we don't relate to God based on our work. We relate to God based on his work for us. That's the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is that now, just like Yahweh said to Israel, I stretched out my mighty hand. 
So Jesus says to us, with mighty outstretched arms, I did the work that was required. So much so that on the cross, I said, it is finished. And because that work is done, you can relate to me because of my work for you rather than your work for me. It won't because, be because you prayed good prayers or went to church enough or did enough good deeds. It will be because you received by faith the work that Jesus Christ did for you. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you take a day off. That's how you receive rest. So today, you'll leave from here. When you do, today's the Lord's day. It's a great day to begin. To begin to think through where is there going to be a regular rhythm of rest in your life. Today's a great day. It's the Lord's day for you to think through this. So today, go to lunch and eat your food with friends and family and eat it slowly. Enjoy it. Listen to good music. Don't do the things today that need to get done. They'll get done. Instead, do the things that bring life back to your soul that revive you, that refresh you, that renew you. You haven't earned it. There's still work to be done, but receive it as a gift from God. A God who cares for you enough to say, here's my gift to you. So go for a walk, just for a walk's sake. Call friends over and have dinner. Enjoy good food and drink. Receive God's many blessings. Take a nap and take a drive. And as you do, Receive the gift of Sabbath, remembering, I'm not God, and I'm not a slave. I'm not God, and I'm not a slave. And when those old voices come back into your beautiful, broken mind, you walk past them. You defy them. You ignore them as you embrace a new reality, so that the godliest thing you might do in this coming week would be to take a day off where you rest because you're not God and because you're not a slave. Let's pray together.